Okay. Well, uh, today we're celebrating the Feast of the Nativity of St. John the Baptist. Uh, the Feast of the Nativity of St. John the Baptist. So we know that uh, John the Baptist was about six months older than Jesus. Um, and so if Jesus were to be born, uh, well, if we were to celebrate at least the Nativity of our Lord the end of December, and we were to go forward about six months, where would we be? Yeah. Um, and so what we get then is, is another chance to deal with the last prophet of, um, of our Lord. Uh, we'll deal with a little bit of, of the history of, of John's birth because it was, um, it, it's worth noting. I want to go to Luke chapter 1. Uh, we'll start at uh, verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, before we get to our text today. In those days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts of the fathers to the children and disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And he came out and was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among my people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so just from this, what do we know about uh, John the Baptist? He was a gift from God. Um, why is this one weird? Why, why especially? Because all children are a gift from God, right? Even when they're running around the church. Right. They were past an age where children were going to just be a part of their life. Um, and so this was a reproach to Elizabeth. This, well, as it turns out, was something that a family is a good thing. And God calls it a blessing. And when we fall in line with his word, we recognize that children are a blessing from God. They're, they're something to be um, enjoyed, a heritage of the womb, a reward. Um, and so 
John is, is unique simply in, in for the fact that, that he is born as a gift to Elizabeth and John or and, and Zechariah way past when children should have come. But why else? What does Gabriel tell Zechariah about John? What's he going to be? He's going to be a prophet? Yeah. He's going to be the last prophet. The forerunner of Christ. The, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. The one that, that transitions from the prophets who spoke to the Lord who would speak from his own incarnate mouth. And so what John has then to do is to do something truly unique. In that he's going to close down the old way and move them towards, well, something else. Um, what does this have to do with the way that we approach God? What can you learn with how we deal with God based on this? Yeah, God is certainly merciful to his people and, and answers prayers. Good. What else? They can go directly to God, and so we just don't need churches or priests anymore. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Christ is going to be the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So would this mean that your church is like a big step backward then from what God accomplished? Because that's kind of what we're back to now, right? We have the sacrament of the altar up here where you, you say that you can pray to God, but... Okay. There. So is God present then? How about is God present in the temple sacrifices of the priests in the Old Testament? Okay, if blood's going to forgive sin, if you can't go in a certain room of the, the temple, the Holy of Holies, without dying, then God was present there too. And so, in the same way, from the beginning to the middle to the end, God was with his people. They could, they had access to God. But it's always been clothed. This is something that actually, that that John shows us how we deal with God. You cannot deal with God apart from him being clothed because he is, um, he is other. He's ontologically different than what we are. And And so, how can you conceive of what God is? This is really what we have to start to wrestle with. The idea of of God is just something bigger than us, but what's he look like? What's he do? And try and talk about that without talking about the stuff that he gives you or the feelings that you might have. Clothe this in in who God is instead of how we deal with the world around us. And it gets really almost impossible, doesn't it? God has always had to clothe himself that we might be um, able to, to access him. And so in the Old Testament, he would clothe himself in the sacrifice uh, of the, the temple. Um, he would clothe himself in the animals. So when the lamb was slain upon the temple um, altar that would take away the sins of the people, was God there? Was that, was that a, a godly sacrifice that removed sin? The only way the people could understand this thing is if God would first clothe himself, Right? How about here? Where does God clothe himself? You said uh, that he's truly present in the sacrament. So under body and blood, they're, they're in with and under bread and wine, right? How about even, and this is where it all comes to a head, what John was preparing the way of, the person of Jesus. No one can come to the Father except through the Son. How can you conceive of God without first dealing with Jesus? Through his face is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God revealed. That's 1 Corinthians. 
And so if I want to start to deal with who my God is, I have to recognize that if he's going to teach me anything about himself, there's two things happening. One, he actually wants me to know something about him. And that in and of itself is really cool. Just the simplest fact, God wants to reveal himself to you. That's wild. That changes everything. Because yes, God is bigger than me, and yes, God is something that I can't fully comprehend. But God still wants to tell me about himself. We make it like it's our job to figure out parts of the divine. And so we've come up with all these quips and parables about it. Um, I stole this from somebody, but it, it was really good. So I'm stealing it and I'm going to share it with you. Um, because at least if I'm stealing, I can share what I steal. Like Robin Hood of theology. Um, there, there's, this, this old, um, <laughs> there's this old tale of you know, three blind guys trying to figure out what an elephant is, right? And so one of them grabs the leg and says, oh, I got a tree. And one of them grabs the trunk and says, oh, I got a snake. And one of them grabs the tusk or the tail and says, I don't even know what that is. Um, (laughs) None of them quite have the whole picture of the elephant. And so this has been used to say then every religion has at least something right. And you can learn a little bit about God from every single faith out there. You want to know more about who the divine is. First, you got to study Judaism, then Christianity, then Islam, then pagan gods, then Wiccan. Just study everything and you'll have a little bit of that elephant. And none of them has a full picture. And every last one of that assumes that God wants you to know nothing about him. Otherwise, he would have revealed himself. What if God actually wants to tell you who he is? What if the elephant could talk? What if the elephant says, hey, you've got my tail, and that's my tail, and there's more to me over here? You see what I'm saying? This is how we answer that question. There's a little bit of the divine in every religion. I mean, there might be elements that that flow from Scripture because all the best lies in the world are based upon the truth. That's how I used to try and get out of trouble when I was in high school. When I broke curfew, I did not say, aliens abducted me, and I'm really sorry I'm late. I said my friends were being idiots and I wanted to make sure that everything was settled and then I came home. You know why? Because she knew my friends and my friends were idiots. And so it was not that hard. Um, What if God actually wants to reveal to you who he is? How might he do that? Through his word, through his prophets, through those who he sent to speak about him. God gives you this so that you might learn something. Let's start there. Second, if we're going to understand who God is, he has to make himself like us. We start with the person of Jesus to understand our faith. If you want to know who God is and you don't want to end up pagan, you've got to start with Jesus. Otherwise, you end up only talking about stuff, only talking about feelings, only talking about stuff that you can access. But if you already can access all of that, how is that divine? Unless you're divine. Are you God? What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. That means you're not him. Sorry. Um, If we're going to start here, we start with the person of Jesus, and we recognize God might be bigger than I can comprehend. Because, you know, God. So for me to start to understand somebody who is so different, his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways, that's Isaiah, we start with what he would say about himself what he would present to his people as a revelation. We start with Jesus. Are you with me on this? Questions or comments? Every last time we try and find God in the sunset, what's the problem? It's beautiful. And I can recognize that the the sky above declares his handiwork. That's a psalm. True. 
but am I going to actually learn something about who my God is, learn something about his character, his nature, his love for me in a sunset? We can do this thing with a a sunset, the same thing that we can do with all of our hymns. Um, If you can take the sunset and say, look, God did this, and somebody of a completely different religion can agree with that statement, it's not specific enough. Are you with me? And so I can say then, look, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And somebody who follows the old Norse gods can say, you're right, Odin made that. And only until he names his god do I finally recognize that we made a mistake? That's not specific enough. What if we sing a a hymn that says um, something so vague and and inconsequential that it can be sung in in a Christian church, a Jewish temple, and uh, an Islam mosque, and everybody's on board with what's being said there? Is it a good hymn? It offended nobody. What are you talking about? Don't you know we need new music that we don't fight about here? What does it teach us? Right, it, it, it teaches us 145 music is popular for a reason. Um, but it doesn't actually tell us anything about God. When we start with something that, that we can access, we have to recognize that there's going to be a limit to what we can comprehend. So God would choose to reveal himself. This is how we approach God, as he reveals himself. If God were not to reveal himself, would we find him? Would we understand him? Would we know him to be a God of mercy and love? This is the real struggle that atheists have, and it's just. We, we don't give them enough credit for this. That they say, how can a loving God do these things? Show me how you think God is of love. Because what they're looking at is, where does God reveal himself? Did God reveal himself in the starvation of children? Did God reveal himself in poverty? Did God reveal himself in disease and suffering and death? What do you think? Because if you want to say, I see God in the sunset, Look down, just a touch, and you'll see that sin has broken this world. There's stuff wrong here. If God is only dealing with what you can access in nature, and he doesn't want to tell you anything about himself, then they've got the right idea, and you probably have the wrong one. That's why you don't stare at the sun. It makes you crazy. Um, And so what do we answer to this? We answer what God would reveal to us. And we say, look, yes, there's a lot of awful stuff in this world. The word for that, that this book uses, is called sin. It, it is that which undoes creation. It is that which is evil. It is that which God has commanded us, thou shalt not, because it causes these things. And I'm not saying that because you looked at a dirty site on the internet, it caused world hunger. But I am saying that that which is ground into creation affects creation. And so if I were to pour um, pollutants into your fields week after week year after year would the harvest increase or decrease if sinners were to sin week after week year after year would it have an effect on the world around us if adam and eve were to sin in such a consequential way that it would warp the fabric of existence so much that death would enter the world that thorns and thistles would abound where there were none before would it have consequence that rippled throughout time and space so what does god do about that Your gospel that he tells you says that God loves you so much that recognizing just as well as you do that these things are awful, he does something about it by entering into it and bearing it himself upon a cross, dying and rising for you. 
God needs you to know stuff about him. Because all you want to do is look to what you can figure out based on what you can see and touch and feel. You're right, you'll grab the trunk of the elephant and be pretty far off base. Are you with me on this? So if we want to deal with God, we've got to go to where he is revealing himself. And in the Old Testament, he revealed it through the prophets and the priests. And those were painting a picture of Jesus. In the same way that in the New Testament, now, today, you want to know what God is. You go to, again, where he makes himself present to reveal himself. You go to his word and to where his word would gather you, to his church. And those things still paint a picture of Jesus. It's all coming to this point, this person, Jesus. And so if John is the forerunner of this, then it's all coming to this point, this head, this place where God would would show himself to you. Are, Are you with me here? So if John then is going to reveal to you something about God, what is he sent to do? I'm going to go to our Old Testament lesson today, Isaiah 40, 1 to 8. We're doing the expanded one because the best verses, I think, might get tacked on in the end. Isaiah 40, 1 to 8. This is one of my favorite chapters. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough place is a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What kind of message is John supposed to speak to his people? A message of what? Comfort. So important, he says it twice. Comfort, comfort my people. We have to recognize there's a reason that we need it. I love this because it took me so long to get my head around it. Because it's honest. Comfort, comfort my people. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. What's comforting about that? Don't you know you're all going to get old, wither, and die? Great news. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. What's the problem? Again, if I want to look for creation to reveal to me my God, my God is not somebody I want to have around. There we go. I need something that endures what everything else dies. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of the Lord endures forever, remains forever, lives. The word, by the way, not just the Bible. This is talking about death and resurrection. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It would go forward to say that this word became flesh to dwell among us, that it would wither and die, just like all of the rest of creation. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. What killed Jesus? 
Huh? Sin? He was the sacrifice for our sins. So did sin kill Jesus or did God kill? God killed his own son. Why? To punish sin. The breath of the Lord blew upon and withered. Again, if you want to go just based on the law, there is no comfort. The law says you will be punished for your sins because you have hurt other people by them. You can argue about what's fair or not, but if you hurt other people, the people that God loves, well then, yeah, he's going to be upset. You want to see me be real upset and stop being pastor and start being dad? Say something about my kids. I I love them very much, and so I will defend them. I love you very much, and so I will defend you. This is what love does. This is the forgiveness that we're actually supposed to speak about. Because that recognizes not just law, but also gospel. That we can recognize the truth about our, our own friends and family, call it sin for what it is, and manage to love them anyway, says something. God would do this too. Yes, it was God who punished his own son for our sins. But... This word of the Lord made flesh to dwell upon us, to bear our sin unto death and the wrath of God. What does it do? Lives, remains, endures. After being given over to death, three days later it rises again. When we want to deal with how our God's love for us might be played out in time, we do him a disservice when we say, yeah, this is terrible, but one day you'll go to heaven. If Christianity is a one-day religion, a far-off religion, at least someday you'll go to heaven religion. Where is the comfort now? See, there's, there's a now. And that's not just a someday thing. For there to be a Lord's Supper here, a God present in mercy and forgiveness and strength and life for you here and now. You have to go to the person of Jesus. You have to go to where Jesus is found for you today in word and in sacrament. You have to go to a God who would actually join himself to a broken creation, a, a creation broken by sin, your sin, my sin, Adam's sin, all of it, to bear it himself. A God who doesn't just say someday, but who says now, for you. This is where we start to, to hold on to something, that our faith would be more than just one day I'll die and go to heaven. Because that starts to warp the perception of heaven. We did this a little bit last week. When, when we allow um, the things that we don't like here to, to warp our perception of heaven, right along with the things that we, well, covet, um, we start to paint a picture of heaven without God. We really do. So what's heaven like? Well, I won't be old there, and I won't have cancer there, and I will have a mansion there and not this place, and I will have lots of stuff there, and all the people that I love, they'll be there too. I'll have stuff, and I won't have other stuff. And we forgot to talk about something else entirely again. If we don't see God present in this world, we're pretty quick to write him out of the next. That's weird, right? If we do see God in this world as the giver of all things, so we can recognize the things that we have are good, well then, we don't have to worry about whether or not they'll be there. Because we recognize, again, him as the giver. And so, this stuff is great. I can't wait to be, you know, not burdened with the wages of sin and the resurrection of the body. But more, we'll have God with us. And if God is with us, well then even the things that we don't have now, 
even if the grass withers and even if the flower fades, is their comfort. This is what John was sent to say. Comfort, comfort my people, right? So what did John talk about? I'm going to go to Mark, chapter 1. Mark 1, 4 to 11. <coughs> Mark, chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And we came, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what is John talking about? Christ coming to save sinners. This is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's message is comfort, comfort, and half the time he's talking, he's saying, repent all of you, you sinners. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. It's going to be cut down, thrown into the fire, and burned. Comfort. What do you think? Yes. 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 This is the comfort. We have something that endures what we have broken, namely Jesus points to Jesus. And in the person of Jesus, finally the fullness of God that not only dares to dwell, but dares to be revealed. And so as Jesus comes up out of that water, out of that baptism, do I finally start to understand who my triune God is? How can I understand my triune God through the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity? He comes up out of the water and Yeah, the Trinity reveals himself in the dove, in the booming voice of the Father. Um, Here we start to actually recognize who our God is. um, Because he actually, again, wants to show you something about himself. If he wants to show you something about himself, what does this assume as far as your knowledge of the divine? If God needs to teach you who he is, do you already know who God is? If he's got to teach you, that knowledge is not inherent to, your, to you. Um, if he has to reveal it to you, there's something for you to learn. If he gives you this word, it's not so that you can assume or prove that you are already right, but so that you can actually grow yourself. Are you with me on this? Yes. Um, this is something that uh, Jews and Christians argue about. 
um, was there the, a triune God revealed in the Old Testament? Uh, um, and so the Jews would say, no, this is a Christian invention. Um, it doesn't exist at all. Uh, the Christian would say, if you were paying attention, you understood these things. Um, that, that this is something that the temple, when it wasn't corrupted by man, has always revealed. Genesis chapter 1. I'm comfortable with a tri- uh, triune God in the Old Testament. Uh, I don't know. Should we just start in, in the beginning? It's a good place. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the darkness, or the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and morning the first day. There are three persons of the Trinity there. We can keep going. Um, I'll skip a little bit, but... Uh, oh, how about pick up at verse 26. God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Give me some clues to a triune God. Yeah. This is not the royal we that existed somehow millions of years, or excuse me, thousands of years before um, the Queen of England. Um, This was God saying... There are three persons here working this thing out. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, I want... Yeah. Right, right. So, so one more thing. Um, that the voice that spoke, what did it speak? Words. In the beginning was the word. If you want to understand the Bible, you have to work through the person of the Son. It, it all flows through the second person of the Trinity. It, it, and so here's my question. Did God change somewhere? All right, so the God of the New Testament then that you recognize because he explicitly wants you to recognize that he is triune, um, was he different in the Old Testament? So do you think that he wanted his people to recognize that he was triune even in the Old Testament? If you want to understand this apart from the second person of the Trinity, you will not get it. And that's true, which is why, for example, the Jews still struggle to see the triune God in the Old Testament. We start with the person of the Son. And then work from there. And so I say, all right, this thing is about Jesus. So where is Jesus in the Old Testament? And from there, it all starts to come together. The Old Testament was given to paint a picture of Jesus. It was not a, like, here's something, and then here's something completely new. It was, this is what you should be expecting all along. So that if the forerunner, the the last great prophet, were to say something like, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, this is not a curveball. What they're saying is, he's going to die. He's going to die and bleed for our sins. 
when we start to, to recognize that this whole thing is circling one point, um, then even before that point is given the incarnate name of Jesus, he still was the second person of the Trinity. And so when we started talking about in the Old Testament, I started staying away from the word Christ, the word Jesus, because even in the, the Old Testament, was there a triune God? He wasn't born and named Jesus yet, but he still was God. He was the second person of the Trinity. He was the Son. He was the Word. He was born and named Jesus, and all of a sudden, we can start to, to paint a much bigger picture. So much so that when we look through the Old Testament, all of a sudden, it just, it's, like, it's like Wizard of Oz when everything turned into color. It's, just, it, it's right there. Um, but if you want to do this apart from that, you're going to miss it. Um, this is why there was such excitement over those who, who knew the Old Testament and then were, were shown the person of Jesus. This is the fulfillment of a whole of the scriptures. Is that a Bible verse? Does that kind of answer your question? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it'd be easier if Moses said, Behold the triune God who takes away. Yeah. Paul didn't do it either, though, to be fair. The word Trinity is not in the Bible at all. Um, if, if we want to start with that, you know, uh, assumption again, what we have is um, not a, a set of bullet points. It would be a shorter book. We have a narrative of how God would deal with his creation. And so from that, we, we can pull out the bullet points. And that's where the word Trinity comes from. It, it, it's um, a, um, a gathering in of all of the truth of the scripture into who God is, and, and then spitting it out into one word of Christian shorthand that we can converse with one another. Because otherwise, if we wanted to talk about God, we would probably best be served by uh, opening up our hymnals to page like 300 and, oh, 20... I want to go to the Athanasian Creed. 319. All right, because I don't want to just say the word Trinity so we can have a, a realistically quick Bible class. I, every time I want to say the word God, that's too short. That's not specific enough because I can say in God we trust, but um, so can, you know, everybody who looks for Thor to strike down all the ice giants. And after all, I don't see any ice giants, so he's doing a great job. Um, we'll, let's, let's flesh this out just a touch. Um... We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. For the Father is one person, the Son another, and the Holy Spirit is another. But the God of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is of one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such is the Father is, such is the Son, such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit. I can go through this whole thing. And that's hard. But to even start with this word triune God, they start to flesh it out, right? What are they fleshing it out with? That which is revealed in Scripture. And so I recognize that there is no point in time where this whole thing is just given to you in, in one little package with a bow. Um, so we start with, again, the place where it is given to you in one little small package with a bow in the person of Jesus. And then we start from him and we say, all right, if there is a son, is there a father? Is there a spirit that he sent? How do I know who God is? What has he done? What has he done for me? How can I find him? What does he want me to know about himself? And from there, um, can you find a God of mercy and forgiveness in the Old Testament? 
who say something like, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Can you also find a God of justice? A God not only who creates but redeems. A God who sanctifies. A word which is given over to die and then endure forever. I can find the whole thing there. But again, if I'm not going to start with Jesus, I'm always going to miss it. And you could do it in the Old Testament saying, well, there's no Jesus walking and talking, so clearly he's not there. And just as quickly as you can do it in the New Testament saying, God just wants me to be happy and then one day I'll die and go to heaven and I can see it every time I go fishing. Because there are people who practice that form of supposed Christianity. And it's wrong. And I would dare say it doesn't save. The reason that God would reveal this is that we might be saved. There's a truth. It does matter. But it informs other things. It's not for winning fights. It's for saving souls. So that person then, who just wants to be happy and go fishing and see God in the the sunset, um, what happens when he goes blind and gets crippled? Can he find God anymore? Is there a truth that you might use to comfort him? Not to prove him wrong and say, deal with it. You wasted your life but to comfort him. You have received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins. Christ Jesus bled and died, not just to bear bear your sin, but that you might receive his righteousness. Double. And this is for you, even you a sinner. This isn't for winning fights. This is for giving mercy to sinners. Are you with me here? If you confuse those two, your religion turns dark. Um, That's actually what we're going to talk about today in our sermon. Um, Because by and large, uh, how are we doing it? we got a few minutes. By and large, people are looking for the wrong kind of comfort. Um, And so let's go Matthew 11, 7 to 15. I don't think we'll get to what we want to get to, but we got a sermon too, which is nice. Um, Matthew 11, 7 to 15. (coughs) As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is whom, he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. You who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has been no one arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John the messenger of comfort went out there and didn't just shake a reed full of water at people. (coughs) Didn't tell them how to get soft clothing and live in king's houses. Yelled at sinners to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And this... This is what established him as greatest. What kind of comfort are the people looking for, even now that Jesus has to explain it to them? Material things. What kind of comfort was John giving? Spiritual and eternal? You're right. Um... But it's still hard to lay hold of the spiritual. And so um, it's easy to sort of grab hold of that and say, John says your life's going to be awful and you're a terrible person, but one day you'll at least go to heaven. 
by and large, we, we try and grab hold of this word comfort, and we say comfort is the lack of bad things. And so I have comfortable clothing on if they're not dress clothes. Because this thing pokes me right in the neck. And these pants are, are uncomfortable. Comfort is not the lack of bad things, but the presence of good things. Huh? That's just it. That means that comfort can endure even when there are still bad things. And so if you want to paint comfort as only the lack of bad things, will you ever have comfort on a bad day? There just flat out is no comfort for you. But if comfort is the presence of something good, can you be comforted when you're having a bad day? That's what the word exists for, right? Nobody needs comfort if they're already kosher, if everything's already fine. When my kids have a bad dream and they need comforted, the thing that comforts them is the presence of something good. You could have a bad dream, wake up, turn on the lights, look under the bed, but you still don't feel quite right until mom and dad come in the room. When God would speak comfort, that means that God would actually be present in the midst of sin and death and suffering and darkness to bring light. And this is what comforts Christians. Not just that if you somehow pray hard enough, all the bad things you hate will go away, but that God would join you in them, redeem you from them, save you. Yes, I'm very graceful. Um, <laughs> but this is then, this is the point of the whole scriptures. This is what we're going to talk about today. How we would use this, this word that God would give to us, what comfort is, what John is, is doing to, to give to the people that would make him so great. Um, because how we use his word has everything to do with whether or not there would be comfort found in it um, or, or not. Um, any questions before we close down? Yeah, um, the fourth person that, that looked as if the Son of God. Um, I've seen people allegorize it. Um, I've seen people make just flat out an angel. Um, I, I've seen people say that you know God's hand was there to work. Um, but again, the idea that God would clothe himself in flesh is, um, well, verboten. Um, and so you, you get rid of it. In, in one way or another. Um, but again, yeah, what you have here is if you're only, though, looking for the person of Jesus, will that start to make sense otherwise? Because if you're just starting with the Bible and saying God is sort of a divine force for good in the universe that wants me to feel good, um, the idea that this person is as if the Son of God enduring in the fire, what does it matter? Like, it, what matters to them is they weren't burned up, not that God would be with them in the fire and bring them through. Um, this, this is why we, we do theology the way that we do. We start with Jesus, and then we see what we can learn. Um, and so, I, I mean, when, when I say, you know, what do Jews do with this, I, it's sort of like saying, what do Christians do with this, when we recognize there are many, many schools of thought. And so I can't give you just one flat-out answer, because there isn't one, depending on who you talk to. Just if I were to say, what do Christians do with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, you would have some Christians who, who um, would say, the Bible is not the word of God. Um, I don't know. That's, you know, somebody um, trying to, to cover what science couldn't define, um, so don't worry about it. What really matters is be happy. And, and again, they would ascribe themselves the very same title to their religion that, that you have for yours. Um, Judaism is every bit as vast and diverse. Um, 
And so, yeah, I can't give you a clean-cut answer. Anybody else? Mm-hmm. Other Gospels, yes. Um, and so again, what you have is everybody's perception um, of, the, of the synoptic writers slightly different. They're, they're going after the same point. Um, but um, I, I want to say it's, it's Matthew where the crowd saw it, but I might be wrong. Um, and so, again, we, ha- we have to recognize as we're reading the synoptics, it's not just that like every, you have one story that three people messed up and Christians hadn't realized that somebody might catch on to that, so we thought we better put all of it in one book to make sure that nobody actually reads the whole thing and catches on. Um, but we recognize that in the same way, like if a, a, you had a kid's birthday party and you asked the birthday kid what was going on, he would tell you a different story than the mom who had to clean up after that mess afterwards. It's just you're focused in on different things. There's different things that are important to you. Um, and so to, to one who then wanted, for example, um, the revelation that God would be present among um, his people to the Jews, you would have God being revealed to the crowds. To the one which is just trying to kick Jesus to the cross just as fast as possible because that is the only thing that matters, like Mark. Um, you, you might not have that point. And it doesn't mean that, you know, in one case there was two angels and in one case there was one angel so the whole thing is a lie. It means they're focusing on different things. The mom was at the birthday party too, but if the kid was only worried about the presents and not the mom who had to clean up after all the cake that was smeared upon the walls, um, it doesn't mean that didn't happen. It just means you have different priorities. Yeah, different perspectives. Good. Anybody else? All right, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all.